0: Well, last week in 1 Samuel, we finished up reading and and learning about Hannah's prayer. And one question that I think we're left with after reading Hannah's prayer is, is this actually true? How does this actually work? Because as we learned in Hannah's prayer, it says that God raises up the righteous and that he brings low the wicked. But we mentioned this in the sermon even last week. You look around the world and it doesn't look like that's always happening. All of us can think of wicked, unrighteous people who seem to be prospering and righteous people who seem to be suffering and not not prospering. And so I think the question that this next narrative in the book of Samuel is going to help us answer this morning is, what does it actually look like? How does God accomplish this? Hannah told us in her prayer that God raises up the righteous and cuts down the wicked. So why isn't it happening? What's happening? How is God going to actually accomplish that? How does God work in this world to do what he says he's going to do in blessing the righteous and bringing down the wicked. That is what we are going to see as we continue in our narrative today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And just a recap on how we got here. We, we're not that far into Samuel. We have Hannah, who's a barren woman. She comes to the temple, and she prays and makes a vow to the Lord that he would give her children. And she does. He does. And she has Samuel. And she gives Samuel over to the tabernacle there to be uh, ministering with the priest there. And that's where we are in verse 11. Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And again, as we read through this narrative, we're just gonna read through it and I'll just stop along the way and explain what's going on. I think we're gonna see Hannah's prayer played out in real life. This is how God works as he raises up the righteous and cuts down the wicked. And the first thing we're gonna see through this first section of this narrative, is that all of the deeds of the righteous and the wicked, they're in the sight of the Lord. So as we read, pay attention. See if you can see where God is working in this passage. Is God paying attention? Does God see what's happening? So we're going to pick up in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. We'll stop there briefly to think about, just explain what's going on here. Well, our narrative starts off pretty ominously this morning. The sons of Eli were worthless men. You know that whatever's going to come next can't be good. Not only were they worthless men, scoundrels, good for nothing, uh, they did not even know the Lord. That's in verse 12, right at the beginning of the passage. Remember, this is Hophni and Phinehas. They are priests in the tabernacle, the main tabernacle in Israel at this time at Shiloh. They're running the tabernacle, and they don't know the Lord. That is not a good way to start off, and it's just going to get worse from there. So basically... What they're talking about here in these first few verses, I think it's a peace offering. So there were lots of different offerings that were offered in the tabernacle. A lot of them the priests did all on their own. A lot of the sin offerings, they would just do those for the people. But the peace offering, the people themselves would come into the the tabernacle, into the entrance, and bring their offering. And so I think that's what's happening here. And so let me just explain what the peace offering is supposed to look like, and then we'll see what Hophni and Phinehas were up to, which, spoiler alert, was not good. Not what the peace offering was supposed to look like. So for the peace offering, this is actually a a free will offering. This is not one of the ones that's required like yearly at different times. This is an offering they could bring, any Israelite could bring any time. Usually it was an occasion of thanksgiving or just praise. And then if a vow had been uh, honored, you would bring a peace offering. So that's probably what Hannah brought before this. And so people were coming in and bringing their peace offerings. And here's how it's supposed to go. You're supposed to bring in the animal. There were several animals you could use for this. And the priests were supposed to burn the fat of the animal and the blood on the altar. Then they were going to boil the animal. They boil it or cook it or whatever right there in front of them. And then the priests get an allotted amount. The priests get either the breast and the thigh of the animal. And then actually the rest of the animal was supposed to go to the person who brought the offering, and then they could eat it. This was the only offering where the people who brought in, they got to eat their own offering they brought in. And so they're supposed to come in, priest burns the fat, the priest gets their allotted amount. Remember that the priests were of the tribe of Levi. They didn't have their own inheritance in the land. And so they were supported by the people of Israel, uh, by the freewill offerings of the people. Every offering there was a portion set aside so that the Levites and the priests could eat. So they get the breast and the thigh, and the people take the rest, and it's a feast basically from the Lord of thanksgiving, of peace with the Lord. They eat the rest of that. That's what's supposed to happen. Here's what's happening. Hophni and Phineas, people are bringing in their sacrifice, they're putting it in the pot, they're doing it, and, and the priests get their allotted amount, they get the breast and the thigh. But then on top of that, Hophni and Phinehas are going over with some kind of fork, some kind of pronged fork, going into the pot and just stabbing around in there, fishing out whatever they can, and taking that too. So basically they're taking extra on top of what they're supposed to get, the breast and the thigh. They're going around, shoving the fork into every pot they can find to get a little extra for themselves. Basically they're not satisfied with what they already allotted from God, they were taking extra. And not only are they taking extra for themselves from the, from the offering, this is actually stealing from those people because this was the offering they were supposed to be able to eat. So they were going to eat this m- m- food, and Hophni and Phinehas, because of their gluttony, because of their whatever it is, they go over, they take extra. They just stick the fork in, they get whatever they want out of there. Um, and in verse 14, if you see there where it says, they thrust it into the pan, kettle, cauldron, pot, it lists all these words. Basically, the narrative's trying to drive home to you just how gluttonous these guys were. Any pot that came in there, small pot, big pot, cauldron, kettle, they're going over there with a the fork trying to get more meat out of it because they're not satisfied with what God has provided for them. There's not We don't have a, like a direct analogy to this in our worship today. Obviously, we aren't coming up here and sacrificing animals and eating a feast right in here. So there's not, this is not a one-to-one comparison, but this would be like if we... We're passing the offering place and when it got to the end, the usher just, psh, just stuck a little in their pocket, passed it along. Went back to the offering box in the back and you know stuck a fork in there. Psh, let's see what I can get out of there extra. Um, obviously, it's not exactly the same, but that's what it is. It's corruption. It's total corruption of, of the priests stealing from the people and taking more than they needed and more than they were allotted. Uh, if you think that that part is bad, it just keeps getting worse, starting in verse 15. Moreover, on top of that, Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, "Let, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So it gets even worse. Not only are they stealing from the people the food that they're supposed to eat, they're actually stealing the part of the sacrifice that was for God. And we see that the people are actually more pious, more religious, more fearing of God than the priests themselves are. So again, the priests are supposed to take the fat and burn that on the offering. When they come in, they boil it and everything. They take the fat, they burn it on the offering. Instead, Hophni and Phinehas, before they even get to the fork part, are blocking people at the door with some kind of bouncer who is forcibly taking the raw meat from the people with the fat still in it. And so not only, again, they're stealing the the meat from the people later, before the sacrifice even happens like it's supposed to, they steal the part of the sacrifice that's for God, the fat that goes on to the altar. And you can see that the person uh, who, who talks to them there, he says, well, hold on, just let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. This person realizes, hey, you know, you can steal from me. <laughs> you know, if you take extra of my food, that's one thing. Don't steal the, the God's part. Let, burn the fat first. You know, take as much as you want from me, but don't take God's part. So literally, the random person walking to the temple understands what's happening more than the priest himself understands what's happening in the temple. Uh, interestingly, if you look in uh, Leviticus chapter 7, oh, I forgot to mention that. If you want to read about the peace offering, that's in Leviticus 7. In Leviticus 7, there is a, a command that the people should not eat the fat of animals, any animal. But specifically, they mention the the, the fat of the sacrifice. And this is what it says. This is Leviticus 7.25. For every person who eats the fat of an animal, of which a food offering may be made to the Lord, shall be cut off from his people. So keep that in the back of your mind. They're eating the fat from the offering, which they're not supposed to, and the punishment for that, the penalty for that, is being cut off from the people. So remember that for later. That might come back. And we see in verse 17 uh, that, in fact, God is watching. You can imagine being a person at this time. You can imagine even being Samuel and Samuel's families that come to the temple and just seeing this unbelievable corruption and evil happening in the temple and wondering, God, are you seeing this right now? Do Do you understand what's happening in your temple? They're stealing your sacrifice. They're robbing us. They're robbing you and us. You can imagine the frustration and it seems like God is not doing anything. These priests are just getting away with all of it. But we see in verse 17, no, in fact, the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord. He sees them. And what was their sin? They were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. This is really, to get to the bottom of it, they have lots of sins going on here. They're gluttonous. They're they're pretty much doing everything wrong. But at the very bottom of it is that they have contempt for the Lord. They uh, scorn the Lord. They despise him. They don't know him, they clearly don't fear him, and they despise everything about him as they completely make a mockery of what they're supposed to be doing in the, in the tabernacle. Again, there's no straight uh, analogy to this in our church, but imagine if we had a bouncer standing next to the offering plate. You went to go put it in there. They go, oh, hold on, give me some of that first. You go, no, I gotta put, they just take it from you, knock you down, take it from you. I mean, it's, it's crazy the amount of corruption that was happening in the tabernacle. Now, as we continue, uh, we're going to see the opposite example. Now, this narrative, we're going to see both sides of Hannah's prayer at play here. We've seen the wicked, the wicked that are doing horrible things in the temple, and we're getting an inkling that God sees it, he knows their sin. So we're going to see maybe how they decline as this story goes on. But here's the opposite example. Here's the righteous there in Hannah's prayer, the ones who are supposed to be lifted up. Look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we have a a uh, dichotomy in this passage, a juxtaposition of good and evil. You've got an evil family, Eli's family, and here's the righteous family who are doing what they're supposed to be doing, coming to the temple, and as we read in chapter one, Hannah's had many years of sadness, sorrow, torment, not being able to have children, and now we see Hannah's prayers start to play out where the righteous are indeed lifted up by the Lord. Now Hannah has six children total. She gets to come to the temple every year, see Samuel, bring him clothes, and she continues to be blessed by the Lord and have more and more children And Samuel himself is in the presence of the Lord growing again. Here we see again God is watching, Samuel is in his presence, and Samuel is growing. We can start to see Hannah's prayer unfolding as the righteous are lifted up, as Hannah has more and more children, as they're blessed because they honor the Lord. I wish we could just stop there with the nice, great passage about Samuel and his family, but it actually gets even worse with Eli and his family, starting in verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. Here's Eli. Where has he been in this whole narrative? We don't know. Now he shows up in verse 22. Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So now Eli comes onto the scene, Eli their father, and Eli the most senior priest that we know of at at the tabernacle. And he's heard of what's happening. He's heard what's happening. And did you notice that on top of all the stuff they were doing with the sacrifices, they were also sleeping with women in the tabernacle? I mean, it's just a complete mess. They're, not, they're messing up the actual ritual worship, and when they're not doing that, they're sleeping with women in the tabernacle. It's, it's crazy. So Eli hears about it, and then he goes to them and he gives them a rebuke. He says, hey, I hear what you're doing. This is not good. And what he basically tells them is he sets up kind of a courtroom scenario. He says, hey, if there's two people and they are sinning against each other, one man sinning against another, God can mediate between them. God is, he's higher than them. He can figure out what's going on in between them. But if you sin against God himself, who's going to mediate for you? There's no one that can mediate between God and man because God is higher than you. He's perfect. How, how are you going to get someone to mediate this sin? You're not is the implied uh, unspoken answer there. And then of course, they don't listen to uh, Eli. I want to take a minute to look at Eli here. Um, and what do you guys think? Do you think Eli uh, is, comes off good in this story or not so good? We are, we're going to see later the answer. And we're going to get a very clear answer. But for me, I think it's not so good. You could read this really generously, and somehow Eli had no idea what was happening, and he just heard about it, and he went to go try and stop his sons. He was old. You know, his sons seem to have taken over the day-to-day worship in the in the tabernacle, so he's not maybe there, but The best reading of him is that he hears about it and he goes and deals with it. But I think that's not actually what we see here. He he kept hearing all that his sons were doing, 22. 23, he said to them, "I, I hear of your evil dealings from all the peoples. It's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So it's gotten to the point where everybody in Israel knows about this. They're all gossiping about it to each other. It keeps coming to Eli's ears. He keeps hearing about it. Maybe he's hoping they'll stop, but he keeps hearing about it. And they're spreading it abroad. They're telling everybody. They're going, hey, hey, yeah, I live in Israel. Did you know our priests are sleeping with women in the temple and, and are sacrificing? I mean, it's just it's, it's gotten so bad that Eli just can't not deal with it at this point. Um, and in his rebuke, he doesn't, I mean, he says it's not good. He doesn't really ever say, stop, don't do that. He's like, it's not good. Think about what's going to happen. Um, and again, not only was Eli their, their father, But he's their boss. He's he's the the priest. He's over the senior priest in the temple, in the tabernacle. And so he should know what's going on. He should know what's going on in his temple. And again, remember that Eli doesn't get his food from anywhere else. He gets it from the temple offerings. So where do you think all that extra food that his sons were stealing ended up? On their dinner plates as they sat around that night with their dad. There's all that extra food they stole from both God and from the people of Israel. The section ends, 25, by saying that they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. This is basically a legal judgment on them. God has seen what they're doing, and he says, I've pronounced my final decree here. They're done. I'm going to put them to death. So here again, God appears in the narrative to say he's watching, and he has decided to put them to death, but uh, they're actually not going to be put to death for a couple more chapters. And so again, as we think about Hannah's prayer, we think about the world as we look around and we see good and evil And we wish God was doing something. God is doing something. He's there in the background. He's willing to do things. He's got a plan. And we're going to see how that plan works out in a minute. Hophni and Phinehas had chances to change. They never even knew God in the first place. But if they had at any point along the way repented, stopped doing this insane, evil stuff in the temple, they maybe could have been saved. But at this point, it's too late. They're done. God has decided what will happen with them. And verse 26 One more bright spot in this passage. The boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So hopefully you can see how Hannah's prayer is starting to work out in this passage. Eli's family is starting to go, or sorry, Samuel's family is starting to, their fortunes are starting to change, they're starting to raise up. Samuel continues to grow in stature and favor with God and man. Everybody in the temple likes Samuel. God likes Samuel. He's growing. And uh, we're about to see the final plunge of Eli's family next but I just hope you can see how uh, this might apply to us as we look around at our world today and feel like we can't see God working I think what this passage asks us to do is to trust God to place our faith in him to know that he's sovereign to know that he cares about us that he does see what's happening it's not like God doesn't know what's going on he's well aware of the evil things that are happening he's well aware of the good things that people are doing And he's watching, he sees it, the sin is great, and he has a plan to act on it. So we have to, as we go through our lives, place our trust in him, knowing that he sees it all and he is working through it. God sees the deeds of the righteous and the wicked. He's watching. And so what is God gonna do about it? That's what we're gonna read in the last half of this narrative, starting in verse 27. Everybody's waiting for God to do something. God has decided to do something. We're waiting to see what it is. And it comes in verse 27. We're gonna see that the Lord is going to honor those who honor him. Here's the beginning in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So a prophet shows up, unnamed prophet, walks up to the tabernacle, finds Eli, and now we're going to hear from God in the first person. We haven't heard from God yet, speak in first Samuel and reading this narrative, all of a sudden here comes God on the scene first person to tell us what is Eli doing wrong? What is happening with Eli? And it's going to go, and he's going to start with what is Eli's sin? What's going to be the result of Eli's sin? And then what's God going to do instead because of Eli's sin? So first, what happened with Eli? What happened? He comes and he says, hey, remember how when, when you guys were in Egypt and I selected Aaron to be my high priest? I, I picked your family out of all the families to be the head of the Levites, the head of the tabernacle, the head of worship in Israel. Remember how I, I gave you that privilege, that honor? I honored your family by letting you be the ones to conduct all the sacrifices. So why then, Eli, so if you look at verse 29, that you is plural. Why then you, Eli, and your family, your sons, why do you scorn my sacrifice, trample it, kick on it, have contempt for it? Right here in verse 29, the same sin that Samuel's, or, uh, Eli's sons we're attributed with in verse 17, is attributed to Eli himself. So now we have the answer. Yep, Eli was a part of the problem too. Why do you scorn the sacrifices in my offerings? So Eli, there's two sins basically mentioned in this passage. First is the one we already talked about. They're scorning the sacrifice. But on top of that, the second sin, specific to Eli, there in the end of verse 29, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. So we don't have to guess whether Eli was doing good. He was not. He was honoring his sons above God by eating all that nice meat they stole from God in Israel. Uh, Their family was getting fat while God uh, was not being given his glory, while they were stealing from the people of Israel. So Eli scorned the sacrifice and he honored his sons above the Lord. So now here's the result. This is what God's gonna do because of Eli's sin. Verse 30, Therefore... Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on that same day. Well, this is what happens. This is what God has decided to do. He's seen the sin. Now he's going to bring the judgment. This is what God's going to do. And it's basically one main thing that he's going to do. He's going to cut off Eli's house completely. Do you remember what the punishment was for eating the fat of the sacrifice on the altar in Leviticus 7? It was being cut off completely from the people. And that's exactly what God is going to do to Eli's family. He's going to cut them off completely. And this is brutal. All of them are going to die by the sword. None of them are going to reach old age. Only one of them is going to be spared. But he's going to be spared so he can weep his eyes out at, to see what has happened to his family. They're going to be completely cut off. And God gives a sign. He says, hey, when Hophni and Phineas die on the same day, you'll know that what I'm telling you right now is true. This is going to happen. You are going to be cut off. Your family gone. One interesting thing to note here that I think we should spend some time on is that verse 30, it says, uh, the Lord declared, I promised your house that you would go in and out before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. And so a question that I had as I read through it was, was well, God breaking a promise here? Is he going back on a promise? Because we know that God never lies. He keeps his promises. He's steadfast. He's faithful. If God were to break his promises, we'd be in trouble. Uh so we know from Scripture that he does not break his promises. So what's going on here? What is this promise that God's talking about that he's now taking away from Eli's house? Well, there's two, there's two pieces to it. First of all, this is a promise that was given to Aaron and his sons. And uh, it was basically a conditional promise. It wasn't like, hey, you're going to be my high priest forever, no matter what. You can do anything you want, but I'll just make you my high priest. This is a promise where God said, hey, you can be my high priest and do the job and then I'll bless you and honor you. Basically, Aaron's family was taken out and honored highly, and God said, Hey, I'm honoring you so you can do the job. But if they don't do the job, then why would God keep honoring them? He's going to now let them go, uh, hold them in light esteem, as this passage says. Um, we see this all over the Old Testament. It happens when they go into the land, right? They get to Sinai, they get to Mount Sinai after they've left Egypt, Exodus 19, before they get the Ten Commandments. And the Lord says, Hey, if you obey my word, then you'll be blessed. But if you don't, then you won't be blessed. It's the same thing with Israel, and they do the same thing. They don't obey, they get exiled. So the same with the priests. These specific line of priests have been raised up. God honored them, but then they didn't honor God, and so he is no longer going to honor them. Um, and so he is keeping his promise to, he actually continues to keep his promise to the house of Aaron, despite Eli's family, uh, and he's done this before too. So he's raised up Eli's family. The Levites are still going to be his priests uh, in, the t- in the tabernacle, in the in the temple. Um, but he is just taking one branch of Aaron's family now and he is lowering them down. He's going to raise another one up. This already happened uh, right during Aaron's lifetime. Remember in Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron had four sons and two of them, uh, Abihu, ne- Nadab, I'm forgetting their names. Uh, they brought their strange fire into the temple, this unauthorized fire into the temple. God struck them down. So did God break his promise to Aaron right then when he killed two of his sons? That He said, Aaron, you're going to be the priest of my house forever, but two of his sons are dead now. No, God continues to bring faithful people through while weeding out the unfaithful ones in Aaron's line. So this is the same thing. Now, one part of Aaron's line many years later is now gonna be cut off just like Nadab and Abihu were in Leviticus 10. But God still keeps his promise to the Levites to be his priests, even to Aaron's house to raise up another person out of Aaron's house to be the priest. And so now we're going to see in verses 35 and 36, what's God going to do instead? Now he's out a he's out high priest. He's cut off this line of Aaron, so what's God going to do now? Verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priests' place that I may eat a morsel of bread. Well, we're going to see the result of Hannah's prayer. We're going to see how God works. He takes the wicked, Eli's family, they're out. He cuts them off. And what does he do? Raises up the righteous. Verse 35, he's going to raise up for himself a faithful priest who's going to do what he's supposed to, who's not going to scorn the sacrifices, who's not going to steal from God in Israel, who's not going to sleep with women in the temple. This priest is going to be faithful And it's going to go in and out before my anointed forever. The most immediate person coming up in this narrative is Samuel. Samuel gets raised up. uh, And he is the one who anoints Saul and David. He goes before them. And so in one sense, it's immediately answered by having someone come in to rescue Israel, this last judge, this this prophet Samuel, to come and help them out of this mess. Uh, But this is also answered much further down the line because uh, Samuel's kind of, we'll see it as we keep going through the book, he's not exactly a, like, he's not going to be the high priest forever. You know, he's, he's a prophet. He's doing different stuff. We still need a, a Levite line to be the high priest. And so you don't have to turn there, but uh, you can write this down if you want to check it out later. This prophecy is finally, ultimately fulfilled all the way over in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. I'll just read those. To Abiathar the priest, the king said, this is King Solomon, go to Anatoth to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father because you shared in all my father's afflictions. Here it is, verse 27. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being a priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So it takes multiple generations. We're three kings later. They go from, this is a time with no king. Samuel's a boy, he grows up, you've got Saul, David, finally David's son Solomon, and then finally, all those years later, the final person in Eli's line that's the priest, Abiathar, remember he said one person would be left over to weep? Abiathar, this last high priest, Solomon exiles him and puts in Zadok, the high priest, who's from another one of Aaron's lines, and that's the end of Eli's line. That is how God works out his judgment against Eli's family. And look at that last line uh, in back in First Samuel two, verse thirty six. The people who are left in his house, this is the, this is the total reversal that Hannah's prayer talks about. Total reversal. Uh, Eli's family goes from being the priests who have an allotted amount of food that they're given every every time there's a sacrifice. They're stealing extra food. They're taking as much food as they can. They can't get enough food. They're going to end up so destitute, so hungry, so without food that they would beg to just be a priest to get that allotted amount they were supposed to get in the first place. This is God's amazing justice that these people who were stealing food that wasn't theirs extra on top of it now would like to just go back and take the food they were supposed to get in the first place. Now they're begging to just be able to do what they should have been doing the whole time. So God does see the works of the righteous and the wicked and ultimately God honors those who honor him. That's the point of this whole passage. God is watching, God sees what's happening, and God honors those who honor him. I hope you guys can see how this whole passage is Hannah's prayer in action. We've got Eli's family gone, completely descended, cut down, and Samuel slowly raising up, but we'll continue to see that as we go through the book. But one thing I, I, that struck me that I think we should think about and remember from this passage is that think about how long it took for this to finally fully be fulfilled. God sees it. He's got a plan. He had decided to kill Hophni and Phineas, But the whole judgment against Eli didn't fully happen all the way until Solomon was king. It took that long for this to happen. So what about all the people in Samuel's time just watching this unfold, wondering what God's doing? It's like we said earlier in the sermon, you have to just trust and place faith in God knowing that he does do what he says in Hannah's prayer. He does raise up the righteous and cut down the wicked. It might just take a lot longer than you want it to. Your, your kids might see it. Your grandkids might see it when you can't in your life. And so this is a call for great faith in God, knowing that he is sovereign, that he's watching, and that he's going to honor those who honor him and dishonor those who dishonor him. I mean, he, Hophni and Phineas survive for a little while longer after this and actually screw more stuff up. You'll see that when we get there coming up soon before God finally does it. So you can imagine how long it takes, and it, it is a call for us to be totally trusting in God, knowing that he is, has a plan, he's working it out. I think this passage gives us both an encouragement and a warning. And the encouragement is God does, in fact, reward faithfulness. It doesn't always look like we want it to. It's never going to look like a sports car dropping down in your driveway. But God does reward faithfulness. Hannah eventually had six kids. Samuel grows in stature and favor. So it might not even happen to you. Like I said, it could be generations. But God does reward faithfulness. And so it's an encouragement for us to be faithful, to honor God in everything we do, to worship him with our whole heart, to live for him in everything uh, because God does reward that. Um, God sees that, and he blesses those and honors those who honor him. But this passage is also a warning that he, he holds in little esteem those who dishonor him. He's watching, he sees all our deeds, he will judge, and he sees the things that aren't honoring to him. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but as I was reading this, it's really easy to read about Hophni and Phineas, Phineas and go, man, whew, I'm glad I'm not that bad. That is crazy. I can't believe. I can't imagine I'd ever do anything that bad. But the more we look at their uh, sins, the more we look at what they did in this passage, the more we think about Hophni and Phineas. At least as I think about them, I realize that: Am I really uh, safe from that same judgment that they were under? I mean, that, we we may not have, we not be, you know, skimming off the top of the offering plate and having bouncers physically take money from people or whatever in here. But uh, have I ever, uh, you know, not given God my first fruits in my worship? That's what this offering's about. The best part of the offering goes to God. Have I ever in my life not given the best part to my worship? Have I ever given God my second best, gone through a whole day doing everything, thinking nothing about God, and then go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I should pray, hold on. Or coming in to worship on Sunday morning and singing half-heartedly and kind of not thinking about it and not worshiping totally? I think we've all done it. We've all been there. We have all, in some way, scorned worshiping God, maybe not to the full level of Phinehas and uh, Hophni, but we're all in the same boat. None of us has worshiped God perfectly our whole lives. It's not possible. None of us have done it. But thanks be to God that just in the same way that he raises up a faithful high priest for Israel all this 3,000 plus years ago, God also raises up a faithful high priest for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is all over this passage. I don't know if you caught it as we went through, but there's several points in here that uh, can point us forward to what Jesus is eventually going to do. There's the miraculous birth of Samuel and then of Jesus. We already talked about that. But verse uh, 26, Samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. That verse is echoed almost word for word in Luke 2 to talk about the boy Jesus who was growing in stature and favor with God and man. So in the same way, again, God works like this all the time. He raises up his faithful servant, and he does the same with Jesus Christ. And so he raises him up, he grows, Jesus grows in, in favor with God and man. And throughout his whole life, he worshiped God perfectly. He never gave God a second best. He always did what we can never do, which is to worship him totally, completely, even to the point of death. Can you imagine being crucified and worshiping God perfectly through that whole thing? It's, it's unbelievable, and the most unbelievable part is that all of that he did for us. We are able to uh, now be free from our sins, be forgiven for our imperfect worship, because Jesus was a perfect worshiper in our place. He died, he rose again, so that his obedience, perfect worship in his whole life, could be imputed to us by his spirit. And so we are able to now honor God by the obedience that Christ has given us by his spirit, the power of his spirit. We're empowered to be worshipers who do give God our best. We're able to do that. And so we're again encouraged through Christ, we can worship God and we can honor him in our life. The other part of this passage that it's not just that we are given uh, perfect obedience in Christ imputed to us, but now even when we do mess up again, even after we're saved We've, we have uh, placed our faith in him. We have repented of our sins. We've believed in him for salvation. The next time we mess up, now what happens? We, we've been saved, now what happens? we messed up? Well, guess what? Who can intercede between God and man? That's in, uh, in verse 25. Is there anyone who can intercede between God and man? There is. Jesus Christ, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, is now sitting on the throne of heaven right now, bodily, interceding for us. And so not only can we worship him perfectly, Uh, through the power of his spirit but when we do mess up as we inevitably will jesus is right there in heaven to say hey no i'm interceding for him he has my righteousness i've taken his punishment it is amazing how god raises up his faithful servant uh, to ultimately save all of humanity to be someone who can intercede between god and man for anyone who places their faith in him not only is our, our high priest, but in, a, in an awesome development from this passage, it says the priest will go out before the king forever, before the anointed forever. Jesus ends up being not only the high priest, but the high king. He ends up being our prophet, priest, and king. And so we follow him as our king, knowing that he's interceding for us as our priest. And we see how God, this picture in 1 Samuel, gives us an idea, an idea of how God works. He raises up his faithful servant. He raises up the righteous. He honors those who honor him And now he has made a way through Jesus Christ for us to honor God. And so now we go out this morning and honor him. We go out and live faithfully. We go out and trust, knowing that our salvation is secure in Christ. He's interceding for us. And now we live for him as our king, uh, honoring him in everything we do because God does, in fact, bless those who honor him. And so as we think about that going on into this week, we can remember that everything that happens, good and bad, the deeds of the righteous and the wicked are in God's sight and he will honor those who honor him.